Book One, Part Ten of Herodotus Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. Histories, Volume One, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by A. D. Godley. Book One. Part Ten, Paragraphs a hundred and eighty six to two hundred and sixteen. So she made the deep river her protection, and this work led to another which she added to it. Her city was divided into two parts by the river that flowed through the middle. In the days of the former rulers, when one wanted to go from one part to the other, one had to cross in a boat and this, I suppose, was a nuisance. But the queen also provided for this. She made another monument of her reign out of this same work when the digging of the basin of the lake was done. She had very long blocks of stone cut, and when these were ready and the place was dug, she turned the course of the river into it, and while it was filling, the former channel now being dry, she bricked the borders of the river in the city, and the descent from the gate leading down to the river, with baked bricks, like those of the wall, and near the middle of the city she built a bridge with the stones that had been dug up, binding them together with iron and lead. Each morning she laid square-hewn logs across it, on which the Babylonians crossed. But these logs were removed at night, lest folk always be crossing over and stealing from one another. Then, when the basin she had made for a lake was filled by the river and the bridge was finished, Nitocris brought the Euphrates back to its former channel out of the lake. Thus she had served her purpose, as she thought, by making a swamp of the basin, and her citizens had a bridge made for them. There was a trick, too, that this same queen contrived. She had a tomb made for herself, and set high over the very gate of that entrance of the city which was used most, with writing engraved on the tomb, which read, If any king of Babylon in the future is in need of money, let him open this tomb, and take as much as he likes but let him not open it unless he is in need, for it will be the worse for him. This tomb remained untouched until the kingship fell to Darius. He thought it a very strange thing that he should never use this gate, or take the money when it lay there, and the writing itself invited him to. The reason he did not use the gate was that the dead body would be over his head as he passed through. After opening the tomb, he found no money there, only the dead body, with writing which read, If you were ever satisfied with what you had, and did not disgrace yourself seeking more, you would not have opened the coffins of the dead. Such a woman, it is recorded, was this queen. Cyrus, then, marched against Nitocris' son, who inherited the name of his father, Labinetus, and the sovereignty of Assyria. Now when the great king campaigns, 
he marches well provided with food and flocks from home, and water from the Coaspes River that flows past Susa is carried with him, the only river from which the king will drink. This water of the Coaspes is boiled, and very many four-wheeled wagons drawn by mules carry it in silver vessels, following the king wherever he goes at any time. When Cyrus reached the Gindes River on his march to Babylon, which rises in the mountains of the Mattiini and flows through the Dardanian country into another river, the Tigris, that again passes the city of Opis and empties into the Red Sea, when, I say, Cyrus tried to cross the Gindes, which was navigable there, one of his sacred white horses dashed recklessly into the river trying to get through it, but the current overwhelmed him and swept him under and away. At this violence of the river Cyrus was very angry, and he threatened to make it so feeble that women could ever after cross it easily without wetting their knees. After uttering this threat, he paused in his march against Babylon, and, dividing his army into two parts, drew lines planning out a hundred and eighty canals running every way from either bank of the Gindes. Then he organized his army along the lines and made them dig. Since a great multitude was at work, it went quickly, but they spent the whole summer there before it was finished. Then, at the beginning of the following spring, when Cyrus had punished the Gindes by dividing it among the three hundred and sixty canals, he marched against Babylon at last. The Babylonians sallied out and awaited him, and when he came near their city in his march, they engaged him, but they were beaten and driven inside the city. There they had stored provisions enough for very many years, because they knew already that Cyrus was not a man of no ambition, and saw that he attacked all nations alike. So now they were indifferent to the siege, and Cyrus did not know what to do, being so long delayed and gaining no advantage. Whether someone advised him in his difficulty, or whether he perceived for himself what to do, I do not know, but he did the following. He posted his army at the place where the river goes into the city, and another part of it behind the city, where the river comes out of the city, and told his men to enter the city by the channel of the Euphrates when they saw it to be fordable. Having disposed them and given this command, he himself marched away with those of his army who could not fight. And when he came to the lake, Cyrus dealt with it and with the river, just as had the Babylonian queen. Drawing off the river by a canal into the lake, which was a marsh, he made the stream sink until its former channel could be forded. When this happened, the Persians who were posted with this objective made their way into Babylon by the channel of the Euphrates, which had now sunk to a depth of about the middle of a man's thigh. Now if the Babylonians had known beforehand, or learned what Cyrus was up to, 
they would have let the Persians enter the city and have destroyed them utterly, for then they would have shut all the gates that opened on the river and mounted the walls that ran along the river banks, and so caught their enemies in a trap. But as it was, the Persians took them unawares, and because of the great size of the city, those who dwell there say, those in the outer parts of it were overcome, but the inhabitants of the middle part knew nothing of it. All this time they were dancing and celebrating a holiday which happened to fall then, until they learned the truth only too well. And Babylon, then for the first time, was taken in this way. I shall show how great the power of Babylon is by many other means, but particularly by this. All the land that the great king rules is parcelled out to provision him and his army, and pays tribute besides. Now the territory of Babylon feeds him for four of the twelve months in the year, the whole of the rest of Asia providing for the other eight. Thus the wealth of Assyria is one-third of the entire wealth of Asia. The governorship of this land, which the Persians call Satrapy, is by far the most powerful of all the governorships, since the daily income of Tritanticmes, son of Artabazus, who governed this province by the king's will, was an artaba full of silver. The artaba is a Persian measure containing more than an attic bedimnus by three attic kenixes and besides war-horses, he had eight hundred stallions in his stables, and sixteen thousand brood mares, each stallion servicing twenty mares. Moreover, he kept so great a number of Indian dogs, that four great villages of the plain were appointed to provide food for the dogs, and exempted from all other burdens. Such were the riches of the governor of Babylon. There is little rain in Assyria. This nourishes the roots of the grain, but it is irrigation from the river that ripens the crop and brings the grain to fullness. In Egypt, the river itself rises and floods the fields. In Assyria, they are watered by hand and by swinging beams. For the whole land of Babylon, like Egypt, is cut across by canals. The greatest of these is navigable. It runs towards where the sun rises in winter, from the Euphrates to another river, the Tigris, on which stood the city of Ninus. This land is by far the most fertile in grain which we know. It does not even try to bear trees, fig, vine, or olive, but Demeter's grain is so abundant there that it yields for the most part two hundredfold, and even three hundredfold when the harvest is best. The blades of the wheat and barley there are easily four fingers broad, and for millet and sesame I will not say to what height they grow, though it is known to me, for I am well aware that even what I have said regarding grain is wholly disbelieved by those who have never visited Babylonia. They use no oil except what they make from sesame. There are palm trees there growing all over the plain, most of them yielding fruit, 
from which food is made, and wine, and honey. The Assyrians tend these like figs, and chiefly in this respect, that they tie the fruit of the palm, called male by the Greeks, to the date-bearing palm, so that the gallfly may enter the dates and cause them to ripen, and that the fruit of the palm may not fall. For the male palms, like unripened figs, have gallflies in their fruit. I am going to indicate what seems to me to be the most marvellous thing in the country next to the city itself. Their boats, which ply the river and go to Babylon, are all of skins and round. They make these in Armenia higher up the stream than Assyria. First they cut frames of willow, then they stretch hides over these for a covering, making, as it were, a hold. They neither broaden the stern nor narrow the prow, but the boat is round like a shield. They then fill it with reeds and send it floating down the river with a cargo, and it is for the most part palm-wood casks of wine that they carry down. Two men standing upright steer the boat, each with a paddle, one drawing it to him, the other thrusting it from him. These boats are of all sizes, some small, some very large. The largest of them are of as much as five thousand talents burden. There is a live ass in each boat, or more than one in the larger. So when they have floated down to Babylon and disposed of their cargo, they sell the framework of the boat and all the reeds. The hides are set on the backs of asses, which are then driven back to Armenia, for it is not by any means possible to go upstream by water because of the swiftness of the current. It is for this reason that they make their boats of hides and not of wood. When they have driven their asses back into Armenia, they make more boats in the same way. Such, then, are their boats. For clothing they wear a linen tunic, reaching to the feet. Over this the Babylonian puts on another tunic, of wool, and wraps himself in a white mantle. He wears the shoes of his country, which are like Boeotian sandals. Their hair is worn long and covered by caps. The whole body is perfumed. Every man has a seal and a carved staff, and on every staff is some image, such as that of an apple, or a rose, or a lily, or an eagle. No one carries a staff without an image. This is the equipment of their persons. I will now speak of their established customs. The wisest of these, in our judgment, is one which I have learned by inquiry is also a custom of the Enitai in Illyria. It is this. Once a year in every village all the maidens as they attained marriageable age were collected and brought together into one place, with a crowd of men standing around. Then a crier would display and offer them for sale one by one, first the fairest of all. And then, when she had fetched a great price, he put up for sale the next most attractive, selling all the maidens as lawful wives. Rich men of Assyria who desired to marry would outbid each other for the fairest. 
the ordinary people who desired to marry and had no use for beauty could take the ugly ones and money besides for when the crier had sold all the most attractive he would put up the one that was least beautiful or crippled and offer her to whoever would take her to wife for the least amount until she fell to one who promised to accept least the money came from the sale of the attractive ones who thus paid the dowry of the ugly and the crippled but a man could not give his daughter in marriage to whomever he liked nor could one that bought a girl take her away without giving security that he would in fact make her his wife and if the couple could not agree it was a law that the money be returned men might also come from other villages to buy if they so desired this then was their best custom but it does not continue at this time they have invented a new one lately so that the women be not wronged or taken to another city since the conquest of babylon made them afflicted and poor every one of the people that lacks a livelihood prostitutes his daughters i come now to the next wisest of their customs having no use for physicians they carry the sick into the marketplace then those who have been afflicted themselves by the same illness as the sick man's or seen others in like case come near and advise him about his disease and comfort him telling him by what means they have themselves recovered from it or seen others recover no one may pass by the sick man without speaking and asking after his sickness the dead are embalmed in honey for burial and their dirges are like the dirges of egypt whenever a babylonian has had intercourse with his wife they both sit before a burnt offering of incense and at dawn they wash themselves they will touch no vessel before this is done this is the custom in arabia also the foulest babylonian custom is that which compels every woman of the land to sit in the temple of aphrodite and have intercourse with some stranger once in her life many women who are rich and proud and disdain to mingle with the rest drive to the temple in covered carriages drawn by teams and stand there with a great retinue of attendants but most sit down in the sacred plot of Aphrodite with crowns of cord on their heads. There is a great multitude of women coming and going. Passages marked by line run every way through the crowd, by which the men pass and make their choice. Once a woman has taken her place there, she does not go away to her home before some stranger has cast money into her lap and had intercourse with her outside the temple but while he casts the money he must say i invite you in the name of my litter that is the assyrian name for aphrodite it does not matter what sum the money is the woman will never refuse for that would be a sin the money being by this act made sacred so she follows the first man who casts it and rejects no one after their intercourse having discharged her sacred duty to the goddess 
she goes away to her home, and thereafter there is no bribe, however great, that will get her. So then the women that are fair and tall are soon free to depart. But the uncomely have long to wait, because they cannot fulfil the law, for some of them remain for three years or four. There is a custom like this in some parts of Cyprus. These are established customs among the Babylonians. Furthermore, there are three tribes in the country that eat nothing but fish, which they catch and dry in the sun. Then, after throwing it into a mortar, they pound it with pestles and strain everything through linen. Then whoever desires needs, as it were, a cake of it and eats it. Others bake it like bread. When Cyrus had conquered this nation too, he wanted to subject the Massageti. These are said to be a great and powerful people, dwelling towards the east and the sunrise, beyond the Araxes and opposite the Isidanes, and some say that they are a Scythian people. The Araxes is said by some to be greater, and by some to be less, than the Ister. It is reported that there are many islands in it as big as Lesbos, and men on them who in summer live on roots of all kinds that they dig up, and in winter on fruit that they have got from trees when it was ripe and stored for food. And they know, it is said, of trees bearing a fruit whose effect is this. Gathering in groups and kindling a fire, the people sit around it and throw the fruit into the flames. Then the fumes of it, as it burns, make them drunk as the Greeks are with wine, and more and more drunk as more fruit is thrown on the fire, until at last they rise up to dance and even sing. Such is said to be their way of life. The Araxes flows from the country of the Metienae, as does the Gindes, which Cyrus divided into the three hundred and sixty channels, and empties itself through forty mouths, of which all except one issue into bogs and swamps, where men are said to live whose food is raw fish, and their customary dress sealskins. The one remaining stream of the Araxes flows in a clear channel into the Caspian Sea. Now the Caspian Sea is a part by itself, not having connection with the other sea. For all that sea which the Hellenes navigate, and the sea beyond the pillars which is called Atlantis, and the Erythrean Sea, are in fact all one. But the Caspian is separate, and lies apart by itself. In length it is a voyage of fifteen days, if one uses oars, and in breadth, where it is broadest, a voyage of eight days. On the side towards the west of this sea, the Caucasus runs along by it, which is of all mountain ranges both the greatest in extent and the loftiest. And the Caucasus has many various races of men dwelling in it, living for the most part on the wild produce of the forests. And among them there are said to be trees which produce leaves of such a kind that by pounding them and mixing water with them they paint figures upon their garments, and the figures do not wash out, 
but grow old with the woollen stuff as if they had been woven into it at the first. And men say that the sexual intercourse of these people is open like that of cattle. This sea called Caspian is hemmed in to the west by the Caucasus. Towards the east and the sunrise there stretches from its shores a boundless plain as far as the eye can see. The greater part of this wide plain is the country of the Massageti, against whom Cyrus was eager to lead his army, for there were many weighty reasons that impelled and encouraged him to do so. First, his birth, because of which he seemed to be something more than mortal, and next his victories in his wars, for no nation that Cyrus undertook to attack could escape from him. Now at this time the Massageti were ruled by a queen called Tomiris, whose husband was dead. Cyrus sent a message with a pretense of wanting her for his wife, but Tomiris would have none of his advances, well understanding that he wanted not her, but the kingdom of the Massageti. So when Guile was of no avail, Cyrus marched to the Araxes and openly prepared to attack the Massageti. He bridged the river for his army to cross, and built towers on the pontoons bridging the river. But while he was busy at this, Tomyrus sent a herald to him with this message. O king of the Medes, stop hurrying on what you are hurrying on, for you cannot know whether the completion of this work will be for your advantage. Stop, and be king of your own country, and endure seeing us ruling those whom we rule. But if you will not take this advice, and will do anything rather than remain at peace, then if you so greatly desire to try the strength of the Massageti, stop your present work of bridging the river, and let us withdraw three days' journey from the Araxes, and when that is done, cross into our country. Or if you prefer to receive us into your country, then withdraw yourself, as I have said. Hearing this, Cyrus called together the leading Persians, and laid the matter before them, asking them to advise him which he should do. They all spoke to the same end, urging him to let Tomyris and her army enter his country. But Croesus the Lydian, who was present, was displeased by their advice, and spoke against it. "'O king,' he said, "'you have before now heard from me that since Zeus has given me to you, I will turn aside to the best of my ability whatever misadventure I see threatening your house.' and disaster has been my teacher. Now, if you think that you and the army that you lead are immortal, I have no business giving you advice. But if you know that you and those whom you rule are only men, then I must first teach you this. Men's fortunes are on a wheel, which in its turning does not allow the same man to prosper for ever. So, if that is the case, I am not of the same opinion about the business in hand as these other counsellors of yours. 
this is the danger if we agree to let the enemy enter your country. If you lose the battle, you lose your empire also. For it is plain that if the Massageti win, they will not retreat, but will march against your provinces. And if you conquer them, it is a lesser victory than if you crossed into their country and routed the Massageti and pursued them. For I weigh your chances against theirs, and suppose that when you have beaten your adversaries, you will march for the seat of Tomiris' power. And besides what I have shown, it would be a shameful thing, and not to be endured, if Cyrus, the son of Cambyses, should yield and give ground before a woman. Now then, it occurs to me that we should cross and go forward as far as they draw back, and that then we should endeavour to overcome them by doing as I shall show. As I understand, the Massageti have no experience of the good things of Persia, and have never fared well as to what is greatly desirable. Therefore I advise you to cut up the meat of many of your sheep and goats into generous portions for these men, and to cook it and serve it as a feast in our camp, providing many bowls of unmixed wine and all kinds of food. Then let your army withdraw to the river again, leaving behind that part of it which is of least value. For if I am not mistaken in my judgment, when the Massageti see so many good things, they will give themselves over to feasting on them, and it will be up to us then to accomplish great things. So these opinions clashed, and Cyrus set aside his former plan, and chose that of Croesus. Consequently he told Tomiris to draw her army off, for he would cross, he said, and attack her. So she withdrew, as she had promised before. Then he entrusted Croesus to the care of his own son Cambyses, to whom he would leave his sovereignty, telling Cambyses to honour Croesus and treat him well if the crossing of the river against the Massageti should not go well. With these instructions he sent the two back to Persia, and he and his army crossed the river. After he had crossed the Araxes, he dreamed that night while sleeping in the country of the Massageti that he saw the eldest of Hystaspes' sons with wings on his shoulders, the one wing overshadowing Asia and the other Europe. Hystaspes, son of Arsames, was an Achaemenid, and Darius was the eldest of his sons, then about twenty years old. This Darius had been left behind in Persia, not yet being of an age to go on campaign. So when Cyrus awoke, he considered his vision, and because it seemed to him to be of great importance, he sent for Hystaspes and said to him privately, Hystaspes, I have caught your son plotting against me and my sovereignty, and I will tell you how I know this for certain. The gods care for me, and show me beforehand all that is coming. Now then I have seen in a dream in the past night your eldest son with wings on his shoulders, 
overshadowing Asia with the one and Europe with the other. From this vision there is no way that he is not plotting against me. Therefore hurry back to Persia and see that when I come back after subjecting this country you bring your son before me to be questioned about this. Cyrus said this thinking that Darius was plotting against him, but in fact heaven was showing him that he himself was to die in the land where he was, and Darius inherit his kingdom. So then Hystaspes replied with this, O king, may there not be any Persian born who would plot against you, but if there is, may he perish suddenly, for you have made the Persians free men instead of slaves, and rulers of all instead of subjects of any. But if your vision does indeed signify that my son is planning revolution, I give him to you to treat as you like. After having given this answer and crossed the Araxes, Hystaspes went to Persia to watch his son for Cyrus, and Cyrus, advancing a day's journey from the Araxes, acted according to Croesus' advice. Cyrus and the sound portion of the Persian army marched back to the Araxes, leaving behind those that were useless. A third of the Masageti forces attacked those of the army who were left behind, and destroyed them despite resistance. Then, when they had overcome their enemies, seeing the banquet spread, they sat down and feasted, and after they had had their fill of food and wine, they fell asleep. Then the Persians attacked them, killing many and taking many more alive, among whom was the son of Tomaris the queen, Spargapises by name, the leader of the Massageti. When Tomiris heard what had happened to her army and her son, she sent a herald to Cyrus with this message. Cyrus, who can never get enough blood, do not be elated by what you have done. It is nothing to be proud of if, by the fruit of the vine, with which you Persians fill yourselves and rage so violently that evil words rise in a flood to your lips when the wine enters your bodies, if, by tricking him with this drug, you got the better of my son, and not by force of arms in battle. Now then, take a word of good advice from me. Give me back my son, and leave this country unpunished, even though you have savaged a third of the Massageti army. But if you will not, then I swear to you by the son, lord of the Massageti, that I shall give even you, who can never get enough of it, your fill of blood. Cyrus dismissed this warning when it was repeated to him. But Spargapises, the son of the queen Tomiris, after the wine wore off and he recognized his evil plight, asked Cyrus to be freed from his bonds, and this was granted him. But as soon as he was freed and had the use of his hands, he did away with himself. Such was the end of Spargapises. Tomiris, when Cyrus would not listen to her, 
collected all her forces and engaged him. This fight I judge to have been the fiercest ever fought by men that were not Greek, and indeed I have learned that this was so. For first, it is said, they shot arrows at each other from a distance, then, when their arrows were all spent, they rushed at each other and fought with their spears and swords, and for a long time they stood fighting and neither would give ground. But at last the Massageti got the upper hand. The greater part of the Persian army was destroyed there on the spot, and Cyrus himself fell there, after having reigned for one year short of thirty years. Tomaris filled a skin with human blood, and searched among the Persian dead for Cyrus's body, and when she found it, she pushed his head into the skin, and insulted the dead man in these words, Though I am alive and have defeated you in battle, you have destroyed me, taking my son by guile. But just as I threatened, I give you your fill of blood. Many stories are told of Cyrus' death. This, that I have told, is the most credible. These Massageti are like the Scythians in their dress and way of life. They are both cavalry and infantry, having some of each kind, and spearmen and archers, and it is their custom to carry battle-axes. They always use gold and bronze. All their spear-points and arrow-heads and battle-axes are bronze, and the adornment of their headgear and belts and girdles is gold. They equip their horses similarly, protecting their chests with bronze breastplates, and putting gold on reins, bits, and cheekplates. But they never use iron and silver, for there is none at all in their country, but gold and bronze abound. Now for their customs. Each man marries a wife, but the wives are common to all. The Greeks say this is a Scythian custom. It is not but a custom of the Massageti. There, when a man desires a woman, he hangs his quiver before her wagon, and has intercourse with her without fear. Though they fix no certain term to life, yet when a man is very old, all his family meet together and kill him, with beasts of the flock besides, then boil the flesh and feast on it. This is held to be the happiest death. When a man dies of an illness, they do not eat him, but bury him in the earth, and lament that he did not live to be killed. They never plant seed. Their fare is their livestock and the fish which they take in abundance from the Araxes. Their drink is milk. The sun is the only god whom they worship, they sacrifice horses to him. The reasoning is that he is the swiftest of the gods, and therefore they give him the swiftest of mortal things. End of Book One Recording by Graham Redmond